Well, as I said earlier, I think that the weather outside today is wonderful, okay? I actually think that October is probably my favorite time of the year. And I love it because the days start off a lot like today. They, they start off cool and crisp, and today's a little crisper than others. But it's, it's very nice to see a change in the weather from what we've had. But I love October because during this change, we see lots of things happening in our world. We, we see the leaves responding to this change. They begin to fall, and there's a beauty to that. The rain comes and changes the way we view even our mornings. When we get up, we don't want to get out of bed because we love to hear that rain falling. But I love all of that. But what I love about October more than all that is this. It causes me to, to begin to think back and imagine, if you will, what it would have been like to hear the sound of an old German hammer banging on a castle door. It also makes me think about a choir of faithful voices throughout the ages joyfully proclaiming the five solas of the Reformation. Sola Scriptura, Sola Gratia, Sola Fide, Solus Christus, and Soli Deo Gloria. And today what I want to do is I want us to draw near to one of those particular solas this morning because I think it is probably the most... Um, joyfully proclaimed sola in all of scripture and i think that that sola is solus christus christ alone and i believe that this glorious sola statement is fundamental to all of the rest of those statements and here's why i say that sola scriptura points out the foundational cause of our salvation and it is linked to christ we learn that in the scriptures Sola Gratia points out that the moving cause of our salvation is grounded in Christ. Sola Fide points out that the instrumental cause of our salvation is focused on Christ. And Sola Deo Gloria points out that the eternal cause of our salvation is glorified in Christ. And, and this is all because it's all because of the meritorious work of Christ. He is who secured our salvation. We are saved by Christ alone. And those solo statements all funnel down to that. They point to that because they point to the gospel. And church, when, when the reformers begin to see this, it's amazing to see what happened in history. When they, they began to actually understand all of these glorious truths, but this one in particular, their amazement set the world on fire in the 16th century. Their joy was overflowing, and they could not hold back the truth they had discovered and rediscovered from the Scriptures. Because what they learned here and what they began to declare about Jesus, about Solus Christus, it was very critical to all of us as well, and critical to their salvation as well as ours. But what they declared about Christ alone was in conflict with the Roman Catholic religion. And that religion at the time dominated the world. And Rome at that time and still today taught many things that the reformers had to stand up and speak against. And they did so from the scriptures, but focused in mainly on the sufficiency of Christ alone in our redemption. Rome taught at the time and still does teach that man must perform works of merit or sacraments in order to be justified in God's sight. Basically, Jesus' work wasn't enough. You had to work. And saints, that is damnable heresy. 
It is to be rejected, refused, and stood against. For, for Roman Catholicism's teaching on this, they, they begin to focus in on his work, on Christ's work. And really what they did in essence was say it wasn't enough. It wasn't sufficient. For Roman Catholics, Jesus' work must be repeated over and over again by their priests in the Mass. And it has to be done that way because man keeps failing. So Christ must continually be re-sacrificed daily to atone for our sins. And now to accomplish this, here's something radical that happens in the Roman Catholic system. To accomplish this re-sacrificing of Christ, the Roman Catholic priest, their mediator between God and man... He must demand that Jesus come back down from heaven daily and be re-sacrificed in the mass at the priest's command. Again, heresy. Because that's not what the Bible teaches. It's not even close. The scriptures clearly teach that sinners are justified by or on the basis of God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ's work alone. And those alone statements are critical to understand. Here's what that means. It means this. We are fully forgiven and fully accepted by Almighty God only on the basis of the finished work of Jesus Christ, our great high priest. That's what we learn in Hebrews 4. So let's go there this morning. Hebrews 4, 14 to 16. This will be the focus of our attention this morning primarily. Here, the the writer of Hebrews begins in verse 14 by saying this, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Now, beginning there in verse 14, we're going to look at each part of this and each verse in this text. But beginning there in 414a, here's what we learn. We we learn, number one, we learn that Christ's priestly work of mediation is the the basis or the grounds or the foundation of our faith, our very salvation. His work of mediation is the basis of our salvation. And we see that that glorious truth, I think, unveiled there in 14a, which says this, again, we have a great high priest. What's he done, though? He has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Now, That first part is amazing for anyone here who is born again. If you read that, you have a great high priest. You have a great mediator. And who is he? He's God the Son. This is astounding. This is who is bringing you into God the Father's presence. You have a great, meaning sinners have a great high priest, an intercessor, one who's mediated for us. That's a glorious statement of fact. And it's also a fact that is worthy of praise. And beyond that, we see just how great in this text, we see how great our high priest truly is when you really consider what it's saying. Basically, the latter part of this verse, 14a, is telling us that Jesus, our all-sufficient, final, and great high priest, he has perfectly completed his priestly work. And how do we know it? Well, 
He's entered directly into God the Father's presence through the heavens. He has passed through the heavens. Jesus has has done something here no mere human priest could ever do. It means this. Jesus, our great high priest, he is supremely greater than any Old Testament high priest, much less any modern-day priest. He is beyond them, beyond measure, greater than them. The writer of Hebrews, he's, he's, he's saying this in a way that would be significant to the hearers, but also to us. He, he's basically unveiling some very weighty theological truths in this very first verse. It's a declaration and a confession is how it's defined here in 14 to 16. But for us, we need to understand how to grasp this confession that he's making that should be our confession as Christians. We we need to understand something about what this language is about here, high priest and passing through the heavens. This is all part of the Hebraic language and understanding of religion at the time. We need to understand that in the Old Testament, the high priest on the Day of Atonement, here's what he had to do. He had to pass through the veil to offer a blood sacrifice on the mercy seat for the sins of Israel and for himself. But what's missing about Jesus' sacrifice in this text? Here in this text, we learn that our great high priest is not offering a sacrifice for himself, but only for those who would believe upon him. Look at Hebrews 9. We see this outlined a little more. Hebrews 9:11 to 14. It's speaking of this same passing through the veil, that is the heavens here, to offer a sacrifice for us, not for himself. That makes him a greater high priest than any man could ever be. It says, when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, Then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more... With the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. That's astounding. There's no one who could ever do what Jesus did. No mere man could even come close. We are all born in sin. But he offered a spotless sacrifice, a perfect sacrifice in our place by offering himself. Our great high priest, it says here, here's what he did. He passed through the heavens as through the veil of the temple. Think about that. The whole illustration of that in the Old Testament was to point to this. This is a place that no mere man could pass through. The heavens, literally passing from this world into God's very presence. That's what we learn here. The Son of God is a great high priest, greater beyond measure of any priest in this world. He passed through the heavens and entered into the holiest of holies. What's that mean? He entered into the very presence of God the Father. And what's he do there? He presents his own sinless body. He shed his blood for us. He brings that into God the Father's presence in our place. 
And through that priestly mediating work, Christ alone then, it says here, secured for us an eternal redemption. You've been purchased by his blood, and he offered it to the Father in our stead. Perfectly. That's why we are told back there in 4.14, be to hold fast this confession. Cling to this hope. Cling to this assurance. It's Jesus, our great high priest, who went through the heavens in our place before the throne of God to offer his blood as our covering. The Son of God did that for us. Saints, the, the confession that we are calling, being called on to make here by the writer of Hebrews is basically this. He, he's talking about confessing your absolute trust in who Jesus Christ is and what he has accomplished. It's confessing your trust in the Son of God's completion of his high priestly mediating work on your behalf. Saints, that's what we as Christians hold fast to. There's an assurance in that. You can't keep yourself saved. If you could lose your salvation, you would. Christ has secured it. He has went in your stead, done what you could never do. He is your great high priest. And we hold fast to that because Christ did this on our behalf. Not because we're worthy, but because we're needy. He gave himself up as a sacrifice for us. Hebrews 9, further down. Verses 24 to 26, here's what we learn there. It explains to us why we should hold fast to the truth that he has given us here about Jesus. Hold fast to it with confidence. Here's our confidence as Christians. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, not a mere earthly temple, which are copies of the true things. What's what's it say here? He entered into heaven itself. Now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf, nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with the blood of not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages. Why? To put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. That's when we hold fast to this confession. This is what he's done. This is what he's accomplished for us. This tells us that Jesus passed through the holy veil of heaven to offer himself as our sacrifice. And he is now, as our sacrifice, our mediating great high priest. And that means that his work, his priestly work alone, is what our faith is built upon. This is the grounds of of our salvation. This is the object of our faith. It's Jesus. What he did. Why should I be allowed to enter heaven? Jesus is the answer. He has accomplished the work of redemption on my behalf. That's what we're celebrating when we talk about solus Christus. It tells us, and I hope you understand this, if you if you were to be saved, it is solely due to Jesus. That, as a Christian, should cause you to rejoice because you know you couldn't save yourself now, right? No amount of good works, rites, rituals, routines, church attendance could save you. You can't clean your life up. You have to be washed clean by the blood of God the Son. And Jesus willfully did that for you. So I also want you to know 
The reason we can confidently hold fast to this confession, it's not merely some mechanical thing that Jesus did for us, but we can hold fast to this, this confession because Jesus' great work of mediation was also driven by his divine compassion. It's driven by love. God loved us and sent his son. The son came willingly and offered himself a sacrifice. So we hold fast to this confession because of what he did, but why he did it matters too. He loved us. Are we lovely? Well, some of you may look more lovely than others this morning, but in reality, we're very ugly. Our souls are tainted by sin. There's nothing attractive about us. Every one of us are needy in God's sight, needing our sins wiped away, needing to be forgiven of our sins. And God had love for us, and his son came and took our place out of divine compassion. That's another reason we hold fast to this confession. Look back with me at Hebrews 4.15 now. Here in verse 15, we, we see that, secondly, Christ's work of compassion is also the basis for God's grace, God's favor toward us. Just just look at this this glorious and I think comforting truth as it's revealed in verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Understand that as as our incarnate in the flesh, high priest, Jesus now sympathizes with us as the forever theanthropos, the forever God man. He didn't simply just sympathize with us on earth in the flesh. He ascended in glory in the flesh and forever is our sympathetic great high priest, the theanthropos, the God man. This means that he lived in the world like we lived in, right? He understands this world and its wickedness and the sadness that's associated with sin. He experienced real temptations in this world like us, yet without sin. Look what it says. It's telling us that he faced the same world, the same wicked world we face. But unlike us, he overcame sin in the flesh. In our stead, as our substitute, God the Father is well pleased with the work of the Son. That's why he favors us when we are in Christ, in union with Christ, trusting in Christ. It's Jesus' compassion that brings God's grace toward us. His face shines upon us now, even though we still struggle with sin, because our sins are covered by the blood of Christ, who now also intercedes for us. His very blood, his very sacrifice is a forever, freshly, perennial sacrifice of atoning love for us, covering us, sympathizing with our struggles, saying, I have done what you can't do, and you'll be accepted by the Father, not just merely accepted either. You're going to be loved by the Father like he loves me. That's good news. That's good news when we struggle with sin. Listen, we all struggle with sin. Everyone in here does. And if you say you don't, you're a liar. We all struggle with sin. But as the Christian struggles with it, he hates it. Because Christ conquered it. And we love what Christ has done more than we love the sin that we're engaged in. That's why we repent. That's why we confess. That's why we turn. 
We're enamored with the love of Christ who is willing to take our place and be treated as a filthy sinner on the cross. For us, that makes us hate sin and turn away and quickly turn once again to the cross of Christ and rejoice. Christ alone has conquered it in our place. And he understands our struggle. Hebrews 4, 14, or 15 rather. It says that Jesus in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. He didn't fail. This basically means, now when you read the word in every respect, I think this is worthy of emphasizing and pointing out. He was, he was tempted in every respect as we are, right? Every respect here means at every stage of life, Jesus overcame temptation as our substitute for us. Jesus faced the trials of childhood like all kids do, and the struggles of teenage years as all kids do, yet without sin. He faced all those things without sin. Then, then he went on beyond teenage years and faced the temptation of Satan himself as an adult man, yet without sin. At every stage of life, Jesus overcame sin for us because we failed to do that. He overcame so we're, we're saved not by our works, but by this glorious, obedient, holy, and righteous, and good, and loving Savior who took our place and overcame in our stead. And in credits all of his great obedience and love and worthiness to us in redemption. And he takes our sins in exchange and pays the penalty in our place. We have a great high priest. A great high priest. This is monumental. For the Christian, this is essential to your salvation that you understand this. Understand that Jesus faced and overcame real temptation for us. Let's look at look at that here with me in Luke Luke four. We see an example of that in Luke four. After Jesus is baptized, the Spirit leads him into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. This is what it says. I'll just read the first few verses of it. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, verse one returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness. For 40 days, being tempted by the devil, he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. Yes, of course. He's truly human and truly God. He had a truly human body. He was hungry 40 days without food. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, To you I will give it, or give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to, to me, and I will give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Jesus overcame sin for us in an unusually powerful way in this text. He, he deserved, think about what's going on here. See, only, only Jesus, the only man in the world, only human in the world that deserved to always be fed was Jesus. What did he do though? He chose to feel hunger. Why? For us. Christ never deserved a hunger. That's a result of even the fall. Christ never deserved a hunger. He chose pain. 
to satisfy the Father in our stead. So he didn't fail in this temptation. He, he could satisfy us now through his overcoming of this temptation. He is the true bread of life that satisfies us for eternity. That's why he chose hunger in this instance. Later in that text, Satan takes Jesus up and displays to him the entire world he will offer to him. Understand something. Jesus is the only human in the world that had the right and deserved to rule as king of kings. But what's he do? He chooses to serve as our substitute instead. He chose this. Here's why he chose this. He chose this so that slaves of sin will one day be set free from that and rule with him throughout eternity. That's why he does this. And and really most, I think, importantly here, Jesus endured this temptation in the wilderness to do something for us. Not just theologically, but personally, to sympathize with us. And theologically, to overcome the power of sin for us. Both of those are happening in this text. Listen, you cannot split the attributes of God into segments. God is the sum of his attributes. Jesus is the Holy One, the Righteous One, but he's also the Loving One. And he does this out of love for us as the perfect high priest, interceding and mediating on our stead so that we would receive the grace of God. And, and I think part of this is, is due to what only Jesus would have truly known about us. I think that's why he goes through and endures temptation in this way and suffers the way he did as a slave, as a substitute. He went through all this, I think, in part because we don't respond to sin like Jesus did. Temptation comes our way, what do we do? We give in. We yield. More than not, right? The reason for that is we're almost completely desensitized to the sin that's around us every day. We're very unaffected by the ravages of sin that we see every single day. How many of you are already used to watching what's happening in Israel right now? Yeah, it was shocking when we saw all these deaths, but it's not so shocking anymore. Why? Because we become desensitized due to our sinful flesh. But unlike us, sin broke and continues to break the heart of Jesus. Sin in us is what drove him to the cross with compassion to take our place. And now through, through his incarnate work, here's what happens. God's grace and compassion is granted to us, again, not based on how we would perform as Christians one day, but based on what Christ has done in our place that day. This is what I mean by Jesus' work of meritorious compassion is the basis of God's grace toward us. We receive God's grace through Christ's compassionate, sin-conquering obedience. And that's really, really good news. It's good news because it tells us that God, the Son, Jesus, He understands our sorrows. He, he knows how ugly and painful life in this sin-cursed world is because Jesus Himself experienced it. He experienced the range of emotions that we all struggle with. He experienced temptations. He experienced pains. And yet, through all that, what's he do? He still goes forward to the cross with the joy that was set before him. He comes to the earth 
steps in because of this. He is a sympathetic great high priest who comes out of compassion. He steps into a world to overcome sin for us. How does he do that? He does it by taking on flesh and receiving the penalty in his own body for our sins so that we would be sensitive to sin. So we would finally see the ravages of sin. We would see the offense of a holy God in our sin. That's why he comes. And the reason he needed to come, the reason we needed him to come, was because God the Son, he was the only one who could truly see what sin does to our lives. Jesus knew a lot of things. But he certainly knew this truth about what sin does to the human soul. And he knew it personally. He saw it. He experienced and watched the ravages of sin among the people he walked with. He knew that sin kills relationships. He knew that sin robs us of compassion. He knew that sin even distorts our normal thinking. He knew how powerful sin was in the heart of men. And therefore he came to set us free from it. He knew that sin would lead us to seek pleasures in life that always end in destruction. He, he saw and he, he felt the destructive weight of sin. And we know he felt it because he chose to carry, carry that burden to the cross in order that we would not have to carry it for eternity. He set us free there from the burden of what sin would bring ultimately, which is death and damnation. God's judgment. Now, as I say all this, as a Christian, here's what I want from you. This is what I want from me. I want us to rejoice over what he's done for us. We, we should feel, in thinking through our great high priest mediating work of compassion, we should feel the weight of sin that held Jesus on the cross in our place. And we should be amazed once again. We should be filled with joy at what he's done. We should be filled with a desire to repent Because of what he's done, this should put sin to death. It should mortify it in our lives. Look what Jesus did to overcome it. No one made him do it. He came willingly and he accomplished an eternal redemption through his righteous, obedient love. That's what Christ alone has done for us. Listen, without Jesus, we would all be damned. Without Jesus, there'd be no way for dead, blind sinners to be saved. Apart from Jesus, we we inwardly desired sin, didn't we? And, And not only that, we not only desired sin, but we actually deserved the result of sin. We deserved death. We deserved judgment. We deserved hell. But glory be to God, we didn't get what we deserved. We received grace, grace upon grace, because Jesus overcame sin's power in our place. And Jesus merited God's eternal favor in our place for us. The love that God the Father has for the Son is now ours. The acceptance of the Son, the, the love that he shows for all eternity toward the Son, that's ours in Christ. So again, Jesus' work here as the great high priest was not just some calculated act of God planned in eternity past that Jesus mechanically worked out in time for some mass of humanity. That's not what's going on here. Not at all. What's going on here in this passage of Scripture is the work of God's, the Son, the divine work of compassion is being expressed for you in a very particular way so you and I understand it and rejoice. 
and make this confession the praise of our mouth. What he did for us was a a work of divine compassion for not a mass of humanity, but for you and I individually. It was your hidden sins that held Christ on the cross. It was your particular sins that caused him to have compassion for you and know that you needed to have redemption. And he chose to give it to you out of his great love. And the Father has graced you because of it. Apart from Jesus, we were all headed to hell. Slaves of sin, Romans tells us. Lovers of self, Colossians tells us. Haters of God, Scripture tells us in James. But at the right time, Jesus shows up. At the right time, Christ came into the world. Why did he come? He came to be despised and forsaken because that's what we deserve in God the Father's presence. He was despised and forsaken for us so that we could be accepted forever by God in his presence for eternity. That's what's going on here. That is an amazing display of God's compassion toward us that we see in the work of Christ. Just think about this. The sinless Lamb of God was slain by God's love for you if you're a believer. He was slain by God's love for you so that you could and I could right now, right here and forever, praise him and be in his presence without shame. In Christ, your sins are washed away, forgotten as far as the east is from the west, not held to your account any longer. They were placed on Jesus' account at the cross. He paid the penalty in your stead so that you could have a clear conscience and you could have confidence to come into the throne of grace knowing that God will hear you in your time of need when you're struggling, still struggling with sin. Jesus came to us, according to Hebrews 4, he came to us in humility And it came for a purpose. He's sympathizing with us. But ultimately, he would sympathize with us at the cross. He would be crushed. Why? Because of our depravity. Because of our sin. And he did that so that we, though, could come now into God's holy presence without fear of judgment. Because we are now, in Christ, we are fully forgiven sons and daughters of God. Washed clean by Jesus' blood and secured by his love for eternity. Listen, saints, if Jesus loved you at your conversion, he doesn't love you any less today when you're struggling. His love is it's unwavering. It doesn't waver with your behavior. He loves you now as much as he always will. That is comforting and great to know when you're struggling with sin and doubt. So as I mentioned doubt, let me let me at this point add that if you're here this morning and if you haven't turned in faith to this great high priest that we're reading about, have turned to him as your Lord and your Savior to, to cleanse away your sin. Here's what you need to understand. If you haven't turned to him and you're still living in your sin and your wickedness of your heart, one day you're going to stand before him. You're going to stand before God's judgment seat one day. And instead of going there under the blood of Christ and rejoicing in his forgiveness that washed away your guilt, you're going to stand there in your own guilt and be judged and found guilty. And you'll receive the penalty of that guilt against God, which is his full justice and his wrath. It's going to be poured out on you for all eternity. Or today, by God's grace, you're going to turn to the one who took your place who received that penalty in your stead to set you free for eternity from the wrath of God and give you fullness of life. 
So if you will turn to Christ and repent of your sins, turn away from your sinful lifestyle and acceptance of sin in your life, and here's what's going to happen. Here's what will happen if you turn away from sin and you look to Christ. You will find mercy and grace in the presence of God now and for eternity. And everybody here that's experienced that can say amen. And if you're here and you haven't believed upon Christ today, you can do that today. Here's why. Because Jesus himself has drawn near to suffer in the place of sinners like everyone else in this room. That's, that's promised to us back in Hebrews 4, 16. We see it in the last part of this text. In verse 16, we see that Christ's high priestly work, thirdly, Christ's high priestly work is the basis of our eternal confidence. Our eternal confidence. Now, understand something about verse 16 Exegetically, you need to grasp this. There's a context, right? Well, verse 16 flows out of verse 14. So verse 14 begins by saying that since then we have a great high priest, that thought is concluded in verse 16 when it says, since we have this great high priest, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. I love this verse. But I can never read this verse privately or publicly before you without questioning some things. Why, why would sinners ever think, how could sinners ever think that we could even dare have the kind of confidence that the writer of Hebrews is calling for here? We are foul, offensive in God's sight in our sin. So how could we have boldness to approach the throne of grace? Almighty God who pierces the heart, looks into our lives and sees what's inside of us all the time. How could we have confidence to stand in his presence? Short answer, Jesus. That's the answer. Hebrews 10 actually gives us the detailed answer. Hebrews 10 verses 12 to 14. Beginning in verse 12. But when Jesus, when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. By a single offering he has perfected. He has brought us into full maturity in God's sight in the sense that we're fully immersed into Christ. His righteousness is credited to our account. We stand before him justified. We are continually being sanctified, made more like him, but we stand in Christ justified in God the Father's presence. So our confidence that the writer is calling for in chapter 4, our confidence in God's holy presence is this. It's that we're grounded, it's, that confidence is grounded in Jesus' mediation, Jesus' compassion, and Jesus' eternal intercession. That's what it's talking about here. We are there in Christ, perfected, made holy in God's sight. In 12 to 14, what we're seeing here is Jesus' offering is, is fully fully satisfied God the Father's demands that was required of us. It fully satisfied the Father's commands. And how do we know that? How do we know Jesus' sacrifice was accepted by God the Father? Well, the text tells us in verse 12, when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat 
down. It is finished. He sat down at the right hand of God. He sat down because his work was done. Behind the veil in the Old Testament temple, there wasn't a chair for the priest to sit in. His work was never done. But when God the Son passes through the veil of the heavens into the holiest of holies, he sits down. His work is finished. His offering fully satisfied God the Father's righteous demands for us. That's glorious. It's glorious because it means that we, as born-again people, we who have been washed in the blood of Christ, we can now come to God's throne, His holy throne, a throne that's only spoken of as judgment in the rest of the Bible. We can come to this throne of grace now through Jesus, and we can come with joyful confidence that we are now, get this, perfectly accepted and loved by God the Father because of the work of his Son. Does that not amaze you? Not just cleansed of sin, but loved by the Father. Loved as much as he loves his son, who's now your substitute. When God the Father sees you and I in his presence, he is well pleased because he sees the full accomplishment of the work of his son being reflected in us. All these verses that I've read to you in Hebrews, they're all really saying the same thing here this morning. They're telling us that now, as Christians, now, through Jesus, our great high priest, we can draw near to the place that no sinner could ever stand without being consumed by holy God unless they are covered by Jesus's righteous and cleansing blood. But now, because of Jesus, through his perfect life, his obedient life, his atoning sacrifice, because of that, now, today, sinners like us who have been forgiven by trusting in Christ... We now have access to the very throne of holy God. Basically, here's what's going on. We have now been granted access to the mercy seat. We're given privilege to come to the mercy seat. At God's throne, we find no judgment. The judgment was meted out on Jesus at the cross. We find no judgment. All we find is mercy that we don't deserve and favor that we could never, ever earn. That's what we find. Notice that both of those come to us, as the the writer of Hebrews says in verse 16, in our time of need. God knows when we have times of need? Well, of course he does. Jesus sympathizes with us. He understands our struggles. Our great high priest makes this accessible to us. We can come before God and find mercy that we don't deserve, favor that we can't earn in our times of need. We have lots of times of need. But anytime you're struggling, this is where you can go. That's what Hebrews 10 further. Hebrews 10, 19 to 23 states to us. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence, there's the word again, to enter the holy places. How do we get there? By the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way. I love that phrase, living way. It means freshly sacrificed or perennially fresh. It never ages. It's always as powerful as it was the day that Christ presented it by the new and living way that he has opened through the curtain that is through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us let us let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, 
with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. That's when we can come to the throne of God in our time of need. The one who has promised is faithful. He has accomplished access to this very place and he's faithful to be there for us in our time of need. And it's, it's through that faithfulness of our, our great high priest, God's, God's throne of judgment is now turned, as I said, into the mercy seat. Because Jesus' blood is sprinkled upon it to cleanse us and intercede for us now for eternity as well. What this is telling us as you read through this, you've heard this in old songs or you've heard this in Puritan writings, that, that through this, through reading all this, what Jesus has done in his great high priestly work, Jesus has become our anchor within the veil. We are forever linked to the mercy seat of God through Christ, Christ alone. We need no other sacrifice. We need no other mediator. We need nothing but Christ alone. But we certainly need him, don't we? I need him every day. I need to be reminded of his love and his grace and his sacrifice every day. I need to preach the gospel to myself every day. We need him. And I hope that you understand that you need him. That's my question. Have you recognized that you need him today in your time of need? As your sins are being exposed, do you go to him? If you need him today, here's what you have to do. Look to him. Simply and humbly cry out to him. He is more eager to come to your aid than you are to ask for the help to come to your aid. And he alone can give you what no one else can. When you cry out to him, he alone can give you eternal healing. He can give you comfort. He can give you security. He can give you peace in this messed up world. Only Christ can do that. If, if you trust in him, that can be the joy of your heart, the confidence of your soul. If you trust in him, here's what will result. As you turn in faith to Jesus, you immediately have to turn away from something else. You have to turn away from your sins, your selfishness, your self-righteousness. I, I, don't, need, I don't need that kind of teaching. I don't need that kind of doctrine. I, I can figure it out on my own. i got my own way to get to God. Me and God out in the woods. That's how it works. No, God has given you instruction in his word to guide you in holiness and love. You turn away from your self-righteousness. You know, different than the Pharisees when you're living in that kind of mindset. Turn away from your sins, your self-righteousness. Confess your guilt to God and cry out for mercy. And folks, listen, if you cry out for mercy, listen, Jesus will hear that cry. He'll hear the plea for mercy because Jesus is the merciful Savior of sinners. So... I want to end this morning by calling all of us, and including those who have not yet believed, to look to our great high priest today and live. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for our great high priest. Jesus, we thank you for the love that you have displayed to us, made clear to us by taking our place at the cross and in rising on the third day to declare that we are justified in God's sight, accepted through your accomplishment. We thank you for the hope that you're now interceding for us in our time of need. And we can come to you and find mercy in that time and grace. You are compassionate toward us. You sympathize with our struggles. 
And yet you give us the hope that you have overcame that sin slavery that we have been bound in. You've given us hope that we can have joy in life and confidence for eternity in your presence. We thank you for the hope that we have that's given to us through your word as we read these texts. I pray that, Jesus, you today would be high and lifted up and exalted in our hearts and our minds and through our actions. And I pray all that, Jesus, for your praise and for your namesake. Amen.